Welcome to Recover Strong, a podcast that will transform your recovery from an eating disorder by helping you go from theory to practice to mastery. This is your special time to learn new skills, tools, and get the inspiration you need to recover strong. Let's get started. Good morning, warriors. Time to start your day. Keep your head up, marching on. Don't let nothing stand in your way. Hello, my warrior friends. How are you all doing? Welcome to this podcast. My name is Jessica Flint. I'm the founder and CEO of Recovery Warriors, a multimedia resource hub for all things related to eating disorder recovery. I personally recovered from an eating disorder and am here to inspire you to do the same. I believe recovery is not only possible, but it's worth it. That is why Recover Strong exists, to help you see and connect to the potential that lies within you to find freedom from an eating disorder. Today, I've got my good friend, Dr. Norman Kim here with us. Norman is a highly sought after speaker, educator, and advocate for eating disorder awareness. Now, I deeply admire his passion for diversity, equity, and inclusion in mental health, and the work he is doing in this arena as the co-founder of the Institute for Anti-Racism and Equity in Mental Health. With a PhD in clinical psychology from UCLA and decades of clinical research and practice, I'm so grateful to have Norman on the show to share his knowledge and experience with you. Welcome to the show, Norman. How are you doing? I'm good. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to have you here because it's been a long time and your bio is so amazing that I want to go through it chronologically. Where did you start with your undergraduate work? So I did my undergraduate at Yale and um, was really interested in, well, actually, I was originally a music and English major and didn't want anything to do with anything other than sort of being creative and taking the whole liberal arts idea very literally. And at some point, I think I had my first probable sort of grown-up recognition that I needed to do something that could actually turn into a career, and it wasn't going to be music, nor was it going to be writing poetry or something. So I switched to being pre-med and psych, and I'd always had an interest in working with kids with developmental disabilities, um, even in high school. And so I found a class that was around that topic, and it happened to be a class on autism. And it really spoke to me, and I just found it very interesting on a lot of levels. So that started my interest more in psychology and and looking at the brain, and especially where the brain is involved in Um, emotional expression, emotional recognition, things like that. So I switched to being a psych major. And did you keep up with music while doing the psychology studies? When I was an undergrad, I was in an acapella singing group, which is an awesome, but also super nerdy. Um, so I've been a singer for my whole life and I've played, you know, instruments for my whole life. But um, I started writing my own songs and performing in L.A. in the singer-songwriter circuit and um, did a good amount of touring sort of during grad school and after grad school and ran a showcase in L.A. for about five years where I performed and I had other people perform with me. And it was just, it was a blast. It was really um, fun and it was a good exercise in um, sort of flexing those creative muscles. Yeah, and I imagine it was good outlet too with all the research. I mean, that's very rigorous and 
Yeah, and yeah, I'm a Gemini, so I think I've always had that duality thing. <laughs> That's yeah, going for me. And um, no, it was. I think it was actually looking back on things. It was really important to keep things balanced um, because what I was doing was really heavy. And it was good to have not just a fun outlet, but a really meaningful outlet um, in expressing myself in a different way. Yeah, I heard you play at the Marginalized Voices event at the NIDA conference. And yeah, you had so much soul in your voice. And I was taken back because I've always known, you know, Norman, the researcher and clinician, not the Norman, the kick-ass musician. So it was (laughs) cool to be like, wow, that's Norman. (laughs) That's awesome. Yeah, it was cool to see that other side of what you do. So you're in LA and is, in LA. that's where you did your PhD. Yeah, I did my PhD at UCLA in clinical psychology and um, was still studying autism and Asperger's syndrome. And that was really remain that really remained my focus until probably my internship year when one of my rotations happened to be on an eating disorders unit with Mike Strober at UCLA, who's really a pioneer in eating disorder research. And he offered me a postdoc position after um, after I finished my internship, and it was also on something that wasn't eating disorders. It was childhood bipolar disorder, but the eating disorders unit was just down the hall from my office, and so I just started seeing patients on the unit because, honestly, because it was easy, but it really, it very quickly turned into something that um, really connected with me um, on a number of levels. I love the complexity of the patients. I love the the nature of the work that we had to do with the patients. They were extraordinarily challenging in in good and bad ways. And also, I think my personality and my style seemed to work well with the population. And so all of a sudden, um, I became sort of a specialist because there weren't too many people um, who really wanted to work with the eating disorder population. Yeah. And I imagine with your background in autism, I'm not sure if there's much correlation between the two, but kind of the emotional distress and regulation aspect of it, it would, would you say there is some overlap between what you were learning about treating people with autism and treating people with eating disorders? The connection was something, just like you're saying, was just in that both involve um, emotional understanding and both involve emotional expression difficulties, but in very different ways. And it's actually only been fairly recently that there's been a lot more attention paid on more direct linkage between autism and anorexia in particular. And actually, I was at the International um, Academy for Eating Disorder Conference, and there were a number of talks on the looking at very direct connections between autism and anorexia, um, which has been which has been sort of hypothesized for a number of years, but it actually does look like there are more connections on the biologic level um, as well as on the behavioral level. So I feel like my career is kind of coming full circle in a a weird way. Um, So it it really was sort of ideal um, training for me to think about the kinds of questions we're dealing with now. Yeah. I remember uh, one time I was hanging out with you in L.A., and you pretty much said eating disorders – are anxiety disorders. And it was kind of one of these moments where it was just like, wow, you're, you're right. And it kind of was, it was like an epiphany. And from, from all your clinical work, have you seen that a majority of your patients struggle with anxiety? 
Yeah, so I can't take any credit for that idea because it's an idea that a lot of people, especially on the research side, have been pushing for a long time. Glenn Waller, who's the former president of the Academy for Eating Disorders, has been arguing this for, for a very long time, as has Michael Strober. And the idea that eating disorders are just better thought of as anxiety disorders, I think just makes a lot more sense um, than almost anything else. And without going into too much of the technicalities behind like how diagnostic entities kind of get categorized in the first place, you know, we know, for example, on the simplest level that um, symptoms of anxiety almost always precede eating disorder symptoms in people who suffer. Um, really, almost almost 100% of the time, as far as we can tell. There are some symptoms that are clearly indicative of anxiety that are present well before um, the first sort of clear eating disorder symptoms managed to come up for most people. Um, we also know that anxiety symptoms are among the last things to go. Um, you know, when people can be fully recovered in terms of their symptoms or in terms of um, weight restoration and, phys- and be physically, you know, recovered from their eating disorder symptoms. But what tends to last for a much longer time is is the anxiety. It's the preoccupation. It's the obsessiveness. It's focus on you know, just focus on yourself, issues with self-esteem. Those things are the characteristics that we know um, really are present well after, you know, your actual eating disorder symptoms might have been taken care of. And that's why eating disorders, I think, take so long to to recover from for many people. We also know that the rates of comorbidity are extraordinarily high, anywhere from, I think it's greater than 60% of people with eating disorders have a comorbid anxiety disorder diagnosis, which is a really, really high level of comorbidity between the two. Um, So obsessive compulsive disorder, social anxiety, social phobia, generalized anxiety disorder, all are present at much higher rates. They're also present at higher rates in family members of people with eating disorders, which suggests that there's a strong genetic link between the two illnesses as well. Yeah. What are successful treatment approaches for anxiety? kind of what's out there right now that people are using for anxiety and eating disorders? You know, it depends on um, what kind of anxiety disorder you're talking about. But in general, you know, cognitive behavioral approaches um, have been very, very effective for anxiety in general, you know, because they're going directly at either the somatic symptoms or some of the more cognitive symptoms of of catastrophic thinking or um, really black and white thinking, extremely rigid kinds of thinking, which are their obvious parallels with eating disorders. Um, you know, for something like OCD, there is a very specific kind of behavioral intervention, which is called exposure and response prevention, which is proven to be extremely effective for obsessive compulsive disorder. And because of the much clearer links between obsessive compulsive disorder and um, and eating disorders, um, a big part of that approach takes advantage of the way that we all learn and the way that we're all wired, which to some extent is through fear. You know, when we first learn to swim, you've got to conquer your fear of drowning, I guess, by at some point jumping in the water, right? Um, when we learn how to ride a bike or drive a car, those are fairly not dangerous, but those are things where you could hurt yourself. And we all have to get over those initial fears. But the only way to get over them is to actually um, do the task and practice, and then you get better. Um, So it takes advantage of the way that we all learn and the way that we're all wired um, to also, you know, 
help people who are really stuck in certain patterns of behavior that they can't get out of. You know, in addition to behavioral kinds of approaches, there's also dialectic behavior therapy, which is um, proven to be enormously successful in um, as a component of eating disorder treatment. There are also narrative approaches that um, directly work with people's stories and their telling of the stories that have shown to have some efficacy. You know, family-based therapies uh, can be very, very effective for some people. Um, so most programs will will have elements of, of all of these. There is this core element of someone's story and their experience you know, you're talking about something that's been with somebody for as long as they can remember. And how do you start developing a sense of purpose and meaning um, and sense of connectedness to their person, like to their and, and whatever their identity might be in a way that is in a way that's healing and in a way that will also sort of stick around. And that's, you know, that's much bigger work. So I think, you know, there's no ignoring the um I don't know. I don't really know what else to call it, but that spiritual element, because it's terribly important in terms of, you know, if we're, if we're talking about recovery with a capital R, um, I don't think that happens without addressing that, that deeper thing. Yeah, because we're, I mean, the reality is we're no two people are alike. We may have some genetic kind of um, similarities, things like that, family history, but, uh, you know, it's in our fingerprints. We're different, all of us. Yeah, no, absolutely. And everyone's journey to healing is going to be different because everyone's pain is different. Even though your pain and my pain might on surface look similar in how it expresses itself or something, at our core, my life experience is different from everyone else's life experience. And that also means that it, the way in which I experience the world is going to be very different. Even though, obviously, we all have a lot of commonalities, I think we can all empathize with a feeling of um, insecurity. I think we can all empathize with feeling some sense of being different um, or some sense of being excluded or some sense of not fitting in or not belonging. You know, to some extent, those are universal experiences. But what's more important is what my particular feeling of that belonging is and what my particular pain in this world is. Um, and that's going absolutely going to be different from one person to the next. Yeah. I kind of want to circle back to the uh, OCD because I had a question about that. I was talking with an expert and she said that OCD to actually be diagnosed, you need to be doing the behavior five hours a day. And I was a little bit mm -hmm. uh, surprised by that. Is there kind of subclinical OCD? Because I think there's OCD tendencies. Like I used to write out all my homework and I could not cross it out. I literally could not cross it out. And I would have to rewrite the whole page again. And so homework took me a long time, but it was like perfect. But it was very OCD in the way I handled it. Yeah, so um, there's there are the obsessive thoughts as well as the behaviors that people engage in to try to manage those thoughts and the accompanying anxiety that comes along with them. Um, so, you know, that's clinical OCD. And it's also um, got to it also has to affect your functioning in some profound way. And most people like you're describing, most people with OCD 
full-blown OCD really can't function because they're spending so much time consumed by their obsessive thoughts and, and then trying to engage in their compensatory behaviors to manage the extreme anxiety and, and fear and panic that comes up because of it. Uh, but you're absolutely right. There's all levels of subclinical obsessive compulsive behaviors and, and obsessive compulsive personality styles that absolutely get into people's way and affect their functioning in the world, but maybe don't quite reach the level of clinical significance that would be necessary for a diagnosis. And like with all things, it, you know, it's not like only people who meet full diagnostic criteria are people who suffer. Anyone who's struggling with those impulses, you know, is gonna is also going to be suffering just in a different, you know, maybe to a different degree, but it, it's not a difference in kind. Um, and that's where you know, in addition to full-blown OCD in people with eating disorders, there's definitely a lot of um, connection and a lot of overlap in just the patterns of obsessive thinking and the patterns of needing to do things in a compulsive way, um, as well as the nature of the anxiety and fear that, that's present for people with, um, uh, with any kind of obsessive compulsive tendency or personality style, as well as people with eating disorders who may not have full-blown OCD. Um, but, you know, it, there's another argument to be made that just focusing on the kind of behavior that's present is also important to look at, um, which is, um, you know, which is part of the argument for thinking about eating disorders in a broader sense as anxiety disorders, because we know that's a common element and we know that different kinds of anxiety behaviors are present in this population as well. So would you say like anxiety is kind of the overarching broader and then underneath you can have eating disorders, OCD, there can be overlap between those. But you say it like at the root of all of these anxiety is kind of there. I think, yeah, it does make most sense to look at eating disorders as a kind of anxiety disorder. And again, I think the more genetic evidence comes out and the more biologic evidence we're starting to understand, um, the stronger and stronger that argument makes. To another extent, it kind of doesn't matter how we categorize these things relative to one another. Um, but, you know, in, from a way of thinking, I think it, it kind of does because it does affect how we approach treatment. If eating disorders are just this unicorn, then um, it's harder to to take what we do know from this other area of, you know, of anxiety disorders, for example, and try to apply it to something like an eating disorder. But if we if we start to think about it as having lots of common elements, then it does make sense to see if the same approaches that work for other anxiety disorders might also work for eating disorders, understanding that there are also going to be differences in the same way that OCD is very different from social phobia, for example, even though they're both anxiety disorders. Yeah. I also really like that point you made earlier about people, just because you don't have the clinical OCD doesn't mean that you're, you don't have pain. And I think that's really important for eating disorders because a lot of people, you know, don't meet the DSM-5. It's now six now, right? And six? No, five. Five still? Okay. Still on five. Jumping ahead. The DSM-5. And they feel like, well, I don't have anorexia. You know, I don't have a low enough body weight. But it, and I think that prevents a lot of people from getting the help they need because they don't feel like they're sick enough because they're not meeting the full clinical criteria. Yeah, and it's particularly important because... One of the characteristics of people with eating disorders, I think, is a feeling of I don't deserve help. 
mm-hmm. right? That I don't, because I don't look sick to the world all the time. Either I have to make myself look sick to the world to match how I feel inside, or I have to find some other way to to sort of justify the level of pain that I'm feeling. And that's a horrible thing, like that that disconnect between how one might be feeling inside and then how you think other people are perceiving you. When that when those two things are far apart from one another, that's a horrible, horrible feeling. And it's tremendously distressful. And um, so especially because it's such a core feature of, of what an eating disorder feels like, um, because you already feel like you're not deserving of love and care and uh, you know and people's time and energy etc and you don't feel like you're as good as the person next to you if those are all common features then having these diagnostic criteria that kind of reinforce that that belief um, is really problematic Um, there are many many people struggling with eating disorders that are not getting help because they don't meet these like um, kind of arbitrary, you know, distinctions that we're making in criteria, and because of the way that, you know, unfortunately, because of the way that insurance coverage works, and that this expensive is, this uh, treatment can be quite expensive. You know, we're sort of bound by fitting people into these into these boxes when we know the illness doesn't always fit into those boxes. There's significantly more people, like you know, many times fold number of people who have subclinical eating disorders that are nevertheless impairing ability to function in life, impairing their happiness and well-being, um, causing them a tremendous amount of pain, like all of the things that we would say would be worthy of clinical attention and worthy of treatment. There are many, many more people who are, who are in that camp than there are people who actually meet criteria for um, one eating disorder or the other. Um, and that's that's something we need to do a lot of thinking about as a field and how we're going to address it um, at the level of education as well as at the level of how do we bring those people into treatment. Yeah, there needs to be a reform with insurance for sure. It's They're yeah. just big bullies. Yeah. You have to do, you have to fight them a lot. <laughs> glad yeah. I, I'm glad uh, I don't. <laughs> we would need a whole other show or two to yeah. talk about insurance. Yeah. Yeah. I really like that we're covering anxiety on this because I personally, my personal story, that was a major breaking point for me when I realized I had anxiety because for a long time I thought I was stressed, overwhelmed, uh, nervous, energy, and I had so many ways that I described it. And I was actually going through my journals the other day. I do that from time to time. And I was seeing all these patterns of describing anxiety, but without the word anxiety. And in a way that label, once I kind of took it in and I realized, wow, I have anxiety. It really helped me and it helped with kind of understanding the way I behaved in the past and in the present and probably in the future. And how has, how have you seen clients describe anxiety? I mean, I think your experience, unfortunately, is probably what most people's experience is, that there's just this thing. And when it's something that's been a part of you for as long as you can remember, that's just that's your normal, right? So even if if there is a word for it, if you don't necessarily connect that word to your own experience, then it kind of doesn't matter. Um, I think, you know, the, I've heard people describe it in any number of ways, just feeling um, some people it's as basic as fear. And for other people, it's more a sense of just constant overwhelm. For other people, it's 
a sense of being, always having to be in a state of alarm or in a state of uh, being vigilant in, you know, in the world to make sure, um, you know, not just make sure that you're not going to get hurt, but just make sure that you're not doing something to offend somebody or just doing something wrong, like that kind of vigilance um, is really exhausting. If you're constantly sort of worried about what you're saying and what you're doing and worried about how it's going to impact other people around you as well as yourself now and moving into the future. Like that's what anxiety is. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, the problem is anxiety is actually really useful. Um, more than just useful, actually, it's essential. Anxiety is what allowed our ancestors to survive so that we would exist now. You know, if cavemen out there weren't anxious, then they wouldn't survive because they wouldn't be worried about where the next threat was and they wouldn't be thinking ahead to, if I turn this corner, I wonder if I should take a peek first before I get eaten by something. Um, anxiety is what allowed all of us to survive. And the problem is that that instinct still stays with us because it's been, it's been, it's evolved to become an essential part of of all of our wiring for, you know, 99.99% of our, our history as a species. And it's a very small percentage of time, you know, if we're thinking about geologic time or evolutionary time, when we've not had those kinds of threats in our environment. So we still have those instincts and they're still really important. So anxiety now is something that helps us study Maybe one more time for that test tomorrow to make sure we get a good grade on, on, you know, on the test. It's what maybe makes us make sure we know where we're going for a really important appointment because we're not, so we're not late for it. Um, you know, anxiety is enormously beneficial. But for some people, when it takes over, it starts to get in your way more than it, more than it helps. And when it gets in your way, because it involves this really, fundamental part of who we are it's really it's profoundly impactful on your on your functioning Um, it's exhausting to feel that level of worry all the time and that level of fear all the time Um, and when you find something that helps with it even just a little bit which is something that eating disorder behaviors are great at doing of course, you know, it's going to feel wonderful. It's going to feel, it's very hard when you've been in that state to feel, to know the difference between something that makes you feel good and something that just makes you feel less bad. Because when you've been in a chronic state of feeling either unhappiness or a chronic state of feeling worry and um, chronic state of, of anxiety and preoccupation and all of that, anything that makes you feel less of that feels amazing. And that's in, in, a, in the, that's a big pull of for these behaviors, and it's a big reason why um, why stopping the behaviors is so terrifying and so difficult to do. Yeah, ah, you're like the master of profoundly simple statements. <laughs> that feels like. <laughs> Well, one thing I would say too, like the way I I would describe it is, it feels like anxiety is like really in the head. Like sometimes you know you just when you're in an anxious moment. You can like sit and just stare at the wall and just be thinking. Yeah. And people say that to me like, whoa, you're way too in your head. And what I like is somatic coping strategies. And is this a way to kind of get people out of their head and into their body? No, that's exactly right. Um, because anxiety does have both components because – you know, because it's coming from that, it's, you know, we call it our reptile brain because it's coming from that 
the oldest parts of our brain, um, what it's doing is it's preparing our bodies to, it's fight or flight, right? It's preparing our bodies to take some action in response to a threat. So heart racing, you know, um, palm sweating, like being really super hypervigilant of your surroundings. All of those are things that we need to do in order to make a quick decision about what do I do here? Do I run or do I fight or do I freeze, right? So all of the somatic symptoms, the bodily symptoms that are present in anxiety are, you know, um, can be seen as as a version of, of that really ancient impulse. And it's connected to the stuff that's going on in our head. Because those instincts still remain, even though we don't have the kinds of threats in our environment that we used to, that is, we don't have threats that could kill us like right now, it still feels the same. Yeah. Our, you know, our, as far as our, our brains and our bodies are concerned, there's no difference. Anxiety is anxiety and fear is fear. So it's it's always both of those components. Now, for some people... Some people are just more connected to their bodies than other people. Some people are much more in their heads than other people. But there's always both, you know, there are always both things happening, whether or not they're aware of it. And, and from, but for most people, um, I think they would probably most people who are who are anxious are um, probably going to experience anxiety more, you know, more in their heads and more uh, the cognitive pieces and the, the just being sort of stuck up here um, in the way that you're describing it. And so it's important to also call their attention to what's happening in their bodies because, you know, we're not, those are not two separate things. It's all interconnected. So if you can get away, get out of your head and more into your bodily sensations, that's also good, but also be paying more attention to your bodily sensations so you can do something to try to change it. If you can do something to try to change even your posture, the way that you're sitting, to relax your shoulders, for example. Most of us who are who are anxious probably do kind of live up here mm-hmm. a lot of the time. And even if you're not anxious, if you just do this, it doesn't feel good. It, it makes you feel more anxious. And so calling attention to those sensations so that you can, you know, make an adjustment in your posture or you can make an adjustment in how tense your muscles are, because those are all things that we can do. Even something as profoundly simple as um, just monitoring your own breathing, which is an essential part of any kind of meditative um, yogic practice. And we've I don't know why, but we've all become really disconnected from something as simple as proper breathing techniques. Um, so calling attention to your body so that you can um, both be attentive, but also try to change some of those things to start, you know, changing that feeling of anxiety. And then, you know, it also opens up your ability to pay attention to what's happening in your head in a different kind of way. Yeah. And I think that's why yoga was so helpful because of that breathing, but just getting the body like into the body and feeling grounded and relaxing your shoulders and relaxing your muscles at the same time, focusing on them. Yeah. You know, I think it makes a lot of sense because most people think about uh, yoga as, you know, there's that kind of meditative um, relaxing um, association we have with yoga. Right. But any kind of physical activity, you've got to start with good breath control and, you know, breathing gives your muscles oxygen. Um, there's no physical activity that doesn't involve at its core proper breathing technique, no matter what you're doing. Strength comes from proper breath. There's nothing that's not connected to, to our breath. 
and this is something that I think the ancient world knew that we've kind of lost touch with. Yeah. So do you have a breathing practice yourself? Um, I do. Um, not as much as I'd like to, honestly. Um, you know, I think this is probably a common common ailment of, of all of us um, exactly. that we should we could all stand to do better, stand to do more of what we preach um, in our own practice. But um, but yeah, I think I mean probably more because I've been a singer for most of my life. It's something that I'm certainly very conscious of. I try to pay a lot of attention to. But yeah, it, it, I could definitely stand to do more of it in my own life, just as a like centering myself for the day. Yeah, and it doesn't have to be you know a lot of time either. It really can be just a few minutes or even a few breaths, just, okay, like recentering, getting back. I know a lot of my listeners listen to a lot of podcasts and there's always this lot of inspiration in their ears about people who do this and that, and you end up feeling like you're falling short because you're not doing all of that. I think sometimes we have to say we're doing enough. <laughs> just That's right. <laughs> and then just add on as, as Except you can. Except our own imperfections. Yeah. 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 Oh, well, it's been so great talking with you, Norman. I love it. Before we wrap up the show, I just want to take a minute and acknowledge you for being such a strong advocate and a pioneer in the field of eating disorder treatment, helping people find meaning and integrity in their life free from eating disorder thoughts and behaviors. And I just think it's amazing work. So thank you. Thank you. I mean, thank you for being a great friend and for what you're doing. There's almost nothing more important um, than, you know, your kind of advocacy and reaching out. And um, you've, you know, maybe you don't, but you've made a tremendous and very direct impact on people's lives. So I'm very proud to be your friend. Well, it's cool. We're in mutual reception. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show, Norman, and sharing all this great insight with us. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Dr. Norman Kim. You can find out about the great work Norman is doing in the social justice and diversity, equity, and inclusion space of mental health by going to his LinkedIn page. You can find the link below in the description box for this episode. Now, let's go over the three key takeaways from this conversation to help you recover strong. Key takeaway number one. Eating disorders are a kind of anxiety disorder. Norman shared that symptoms of anxiety almost always precede an eating disorder. So think about that in your case. Did you have symptoms of anxiety before your eating disorder began to develop? We also learned that anxiety symptoms are among the last things to go in eating disorder recovery. People can be fully recovered in terms of their eating disorder symptoms and behaviors, but the anxiety tends to last for a much longer time. So don't be anxious about that anxiety. Dr. Norman Kim elaborated on how eating disorder behaviors can be used as a way to cope for people experiencing anxiety. It's exhausting to feel that level of worry all the time and that level of fear all the time. Um, and when you find something that helps with it, even just a little bit, which is something that eating disorder behaviors are great at doing, of course, you know, it's going to feel wonderful. It's very hard when you've been in that state to feel to know the difference between something that makes you feel good and something that just makes you feel less bad. Because when you've been in a chronic state of feeling either unhappiness or a chronic state of feeling worry and um, chronic state of, of anxiety and preoccupation and all of that, anything that makes you feel less of that feels amazing. 
that's a big pull of for these behaviors and it's a big reason why stopping the behaviors is so terrifying and so difficult to do. More and more scientific research is coming out to suggest that eating disorders are a type of anxiety disorder. And remember, we all experience anxiety to some degree. It actually can be a good thing and help us in our lives. Anxiety is what allowed humans to survive and evolve. But when anxiety becomes excessive and is a detriment to your life, that may be an anxiety disorder. Recognizing how anxiety plays a role in eating disorders and regarding them as one in the same can help you on your recovery journey. So that was key takeaway number one. Eating disorders are a kind of anxiety disorder. Key takeaway number two. There's no such thing as being sick enough. The DSM-5, also known as the fifth edition of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Health, can be very limiting and confining in its criteria. It can be confusing when you see that you only meet some characteristics of an eating disorder diagnosis, but not all, and I certainly remember that was in my case. Or if you're dealing with insurance companies, their qualifications can feel invalidating when you don't meet them. Know that your pain is valid, your struggle is valid, and it is significant. These things can't always be measured by a medical book or insurance guidelines. You are a human being with many nuances and shades of gray, and you are worthy of help. One of the characteristics of people with eating disorders, I think, is a feeling of, I don't deserve help, um, because you already feel like you're not deserving of love and care and and people's time and energy, etc. And you don't feel like you're as good as the person next to you, if those are all common features, then having these diagnostic criteria that kind of reinforce that that belief um, is really problematic. Um, there are many, many people struggling with eating disorders that are not getting help because they don't meet these like um, kind of arbitrary, you know, distinctions that we're making in criteria, and the illness doesn't always fit into those boxes. There are significantly more people who have subclinical eating disorders, um, causing them a tremendous amount of pain. Like all of the things that we would say would be worthy of clinical attention and worthy of treatment, there are many, many more people who are who are in that camp than there are people who actually meet criteria for. Um, one eating disorder or the other. Avoid comparing yourself to others. There is always someone who will seem worse or better off than you. If you're struggling with food and you're hurting and you want help, you deserve it. Help is out there. There's no such thing as needing to be quote unquote sick enough. You have the power to advocate for yourself and your needs by seeking care. So that was key takeaway number two. There's no such thing as being sick enough. Finally, key takeaway number three. Treatment is not one size fits all. There are many different types of therapy, professionals, and treatment programs to embrace on your recovery journey. Knowing about different types of treatment and therapies can empower you to find the best care for you. Norman gave us an overview of a few types of therapy used in treating eating disorders and anxiety. And I always like to think about this as alphabet soup because they all have their own abbreviations. CBT, DBT, ACT, MBT, FBT. That is what I like to call the alphabet soup of treatment. So clearly there are many different options that you can turn to when looking to treat your eating disorder. As Norman said, everybody's journey to healing is different because everybody's pain is different. Seek out whatever type of therapy feels like the best fit for you. Many recovery resources will have elements of multiple types of therapies in their treatments. There is no right or wrong, and some may be better for you at different times than others. 
If you've tried one type of therapy before and it didn't feel right, there is still hope for your recovery. Treatment is not one size fits all. Keep working to find your best treatment fit. So these are three key takeaways from this conversation with Dr. Norman Kim. Well, my warrior friend, thank you for having the discipline to listen in. If you found this episode helpful and know somebody in recovery who could benefit from its inspiring message, please share this show with them. It would mean the world to us at Recovery Warriors if we can get our cause out to more people struggling with an eating disorder. So if what you heard today was helpful, share the show with another warrior or anyone on your treatment team. You can do this directly from your podcast player or send them over to recoverywarriors.com. We have a goldmine of free resources there for all stages of recovery. And until the next episode, may compassion light the path you are on and courage keep you on it. You totally got this, warrior.